Well, the uh, election is coming up. November 2, we have uh, a very uh, uh, unique and uh, elect, uh, unique election that's being watched by so many Americans around the world, uh, around the U.S. and around the world even. We're, uh, we're coming up on a very unique time in our country, and I think this election is, is one that I think uh, many of us, regardless of what side of the political spectrum we're on, I think everyone's interested in this election. And, uh, and so I wanted to come here this morning and tell you precisely who to vote for. No. Though the IRS would, uh, would potentially revoke our tax-exempt status, uh, I will, uh, I'll refrain from doing that. Um, no. You know what I want to talk about this morning, friends? Uh, I want to talk about the Christian's duty before an election, on an election, and after an election. A lot of people will say, oh, well, come on now, you know, Pastor, why are you talking about politics? Why are you talking about government? There's, you know, separation of church and state here. You, you shouldn't be going into these matters. I totally disagree. Um, in Acts 20, 27, Paul is appealing to the elders at Ephesus and he says, I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Why did he say that? He goes on to say, For I have preached to all the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. And whether it is a spiritual matter that pertains to salvation and the end of life, or whether it's a physical matter that pertains to the here and now, we are exhorted, and as Paul was exhorted, and I am exhorted as a pastor, to consider the whole counsel of God. And you know, when the Scriptures speak about government, when the Scriptures speak about politics, which they do, it is incumbent upon us to consider these passages. Passages like Romans 13. Passages like 1 Peter chapter 2. Passages like Genesis 9, which, uh, which speaks of, uh, which speaks of ca capital punishment. There are many sections of the Scriptures that speak on politics, and we would be remiss to never discuss this issue. And so now is as good a time as ever to consider the Christian's duty before, on, and after an election. You've got a big handout here today, right? Everybody got their handout? Excellent. No, uh, no PowerPoint, but we're going to go through this handout. I've made it a little bit more uh, exacting, a little bit more precise so that we could really follow along here uh, this morning. And, you know, I realize I, normally I, I do my title at the very end of my message, like on Friday when I'm, I'm kind of wrapping it up and Saturday final preparations. But on Friday afternoon, I send the ladies my title. I sent it to them early this week. I sent it to them like Tuesday or Wednesday. And I realized after I'd given them my title that I presumed something that maybe I shouldn't have presumed. My title assumes that Christians have duties to perform before, on, and after an election. But I don't think that all Christian people believe that. In fact, uh, I think that a great many Christians believe that they don't have an obligation to the political process. Um, there are a number of common, but I would argue inadequate, reasons that people put forth for avoiding politics. Uh, you know, they, just, they back away, as, even as Christians, and they say, that's not for me. 
I want to talk about four common reasons that I would argue are often said by Christians to avoid political involvement, but are totally inadequate. So let's consider these four things before we get into what a Christian's duty actually is. Number one, four common but inadequate reasons for avoiding politics. Some people say all government is evil. All government is evil in your outline. This is patently false. Is just not true. And I know it's a, maybe it's a common theme among Christians and maybe religious people in general that, oh, well, government's just, uh, you know, it's to the realm of, of Satan and, and to the ruler, the, the prince of this age, he rules over all governments. That's patently false. In Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, Paul writes, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. He goes on in verse 4. For he, who's he? The legislator. He is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Friends, all government is not evil. Um, There are evil forces that um, influence government, no doubt. Satan and his army are readily at work in both the United States and around the world trying to influence leaders for evil. But we are not to conflate influence upon government leaders as making that government itself evil. No, the Lord is in charge. He's the one who's put them in place. He goes on to say, Paul goes on to say that, that the legislator is God's minister. He's God's servant to you for good. Government is actually a blessing from God. And we will soon learn that when we come into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. A situation in which the, the, the kingdom will be very much politically oriented. We will have Jesus Christ on the throne and that government will surely not be evil. Inasmuch as governments do the work that is pleasing to God, they're doing good. Inasmuch as governments betray the principles of Scripture, they're doing bad. But all government is not evil. A second reason some people uh, give for avoiding political process, they say, well, Jesus is coming back soon, so why bother? Jesus is coming back soon, so why bother? Of course, the Bible teaches that no one knows the day or the hour that Jesus will return. Every Christian generation has been given indicators that the end is near, but these indicators are not designed to encourage us uh, to, to just grow apathetic. These indicators are designed to encourage us that, that the Lord is coming, that good is coming. They're not meant to instill in us a sense of fatalism and defeatism. As much as it depends upon us, we are to bring truth and light to all aspects of the world, including politics. So a Jesus is coming back, so why bother view is really inadequate. We never know when He will return. And in the meantime, we're called to be salt and light, regardless of what that salt and light, um, where it's being placed, where it's being sown. A third common but inadequate reason for avoiding politics is someone who says, I believe one's personal religious beliefs 
are a private matter and should not influence politics. Separation of church and state. Now, this is perhaps uh, the most common, uh, one of the more common arguments that I receive uh, from fellow Christians and other religious people who choose to refrain from the political process. They say, look, personal religious beliefs, that's for the realm of faith and religion. And that needs to be utterly and totally separate from the realm of government and politics. There are too many reasons uh, for me to list to demonstrate the, uh, the absurdity of this claim. Um, what, it doesn't concern me that I hear it from secularists. It doesn't concern me that I hear it from atheists or for those, for those who, who look upon government as totally godless. What concerns me is that Christians are putting forth this, this argument time and time again. And it is patently false. I want us to consider for a moment uh, our U.S. Constitution. Uh, at, at, on, the, on the front of your outline there, it, it reads at the beginning of our Constitution, the preamble, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Now, there's something that should be glaringly obvious to anyone who reads the preamble to our nation's Constitution. And that is, who's to say what justice is? Who, who is to say what is the promotion of the general welfare? What authorities are there that can establish what justice is, what general welfare is, or what goodness is for the public? You see, no nation on earth is capable of answering these kinds of questions without appealing to divine guidance. Our founding fathers knew this to be true. They intrinsically knew that God was and is the only one who can establish what justice is and appeal to God to establish justice in a nation is not an appeal to ignorance, but to a clear vision of human life. When Christians suppose that their faith precludes them from political involvement, or when they intentionally leave their faith outside the polling booth, they will one day find themselves living in a nation utterly devoid of justice, of goodness, of morality. You see, our Constitution and the U.S. statutes and laws all these things have been established by appealing to things like reason and authority. Therefore, why should we ever um, consider consult? Therefore, if we're appealing for our very constitution, for our very laws, if we are appealing to reason, to authority, why should we not consult the very one who gives us the ability to reason, who is the final authority? of all life and practice. Any appeal elsewhere is an appeal to an inferior kind of knowledge. When a nation fails to appeal to the right source of justice, 
of goodness, that nation incurs catastrophe. How do we know this? We've seen it. We've seen it in nations like the former Soviet Union that turned to atheism, that turned to a godless society, and it collapsed. It had no moral compass. We've seen it in the gross perversions of religion, like that in Nazi Germany, in which justice was perverted, goodness was perverted, and that nation collapsed. We know that one day, the Holy Spirit's influence will be removed from the earth in the last days, when Christians are are raptured and the Holy Spirit is restrained for a time during the Great Tribulation, we know that when that happens, the greatest atrocities of human history will occur. Nations don't flourish when Christians remain silent in politics. Nations don't flourish when Christianity is removed from politics. Nations fail when Christianity is removed. Wayne Grudem, author of Politics According to the Bible, writes, If Christians do not speak publicly about what the Bible teaches regarding issues of right and wrong, who will? Where will people learn about ethics? There aren't many other good sources for finding any transcendent source of ethics, any source outside of ourselves and our own subjective feelings and consciousness. That's really well said. If we are to suppose that that we need to check our faith at the door before we walk into the voting booth, who are we appealing to? In what manner are you establishing justice? Whose values are you are you casting your vote? It doesn't make sense. A fourth reason that is common but inadequate for avoiding politics is Jesus never got involved in politics. Therefore, Christians should only focus on spiritual things. Jesus never got involved in politics. Therefore, Christians... Uh, should only focus on spiritual things. And that's, uh, to, to, a, to an extent, true. Jesus generally avoided political action, although um, there are many instances in his life in which he did not avoid political action. We see this in his entering the temple and overturning the tables of the money changers. That was, in that day and age, in the first century uh, Jewish culture, that was an extremely political event. We see it in Jesus' defense of a woman caught in adultery. The law required something of her, death by stoning. And Jesus stood up for her and changed the politics. He spoke in such a way that the laws that they had established seemed to be too harsh, too excessive. And those around Him reconsidered and walked away. Still, I will readily admit that Jesus' first coming was largely not about politics. It was about salvation. Interestingly, though, Jesus' second advent is going to be very much about politics. When He returns again, He will be the King of kings on the earth. And so while He didn't get involved in politics in His first advent, um, He will very much have that role in His second coming. 
And he will reign and rule for a thousand years before he delivers the kingdom to the Father. But make no mistake, Jesus chose not to get involved in politics in his first advent. Not because it was ungodly, not because it was immoral, but because it wasn't his purpose in coming. It wasn't his role in coming. His first advent wasn't about the overthrow of Caesar, but the overthrow of Satan. It wasn't Jesus' role. And yet, we see political action in the roles of so many who were called by God in both the Old and the New Testament. There are, the Scriptures are replete with examples of political activism. I think of Joseph, who rose up to the highest position under Pharaoh so that he might provide for the land, so that he might carry a nation through famine. Egypt was a, a, a place where all the nations came to, to receive physical sustenance. And it was Joseph's wit and his ability in politics to effect good, to effect the general welfare of those around him. I think of Moses, who, while very much uh, going to Pharaoh for a, a spiritual exercise to bring the people out that they might worship God, was also very much concerned with freeing the slaves. Moses came that the people of the Jews might be freed from slavery. A, a most common uh, detrimental status in the ancient Near East. And Moses came to release them, to give them liberty, to give them freedom. Don't ever suppose, by the way, that... Uh, don't ever um, concede to another that the Bible supports slavery. The Bible does not support slavery. Now, Paul speaks of slaves and tells them how to conduct themselves. But in Paul's instructions to slaves, he neither condones, he does not condone slavery. He simply tells them, in the state that you are in, this is how you should act. But the Bible is replete with instances in which slavery is condemned, in which Paul sought to release slaves, like with, in the case of Philemon and Onesimus. The Scriptures are very much about the freeing of the slaves giving liberty to the captives, as Isaiah says. What about Daniel? What about John the Baptist? What about Paul? All of whom reasoned with kings and rulers of their day about what constitutes sin, what constitutes righteousness, what constitutes good and evil. Daniel had these conversations with King Nebuchadnezzar. John the Baptist had these conversations with Herod Antipas. Or, uh, I may be mistaken. That may be Philip. Check me on that. Paul had these conversations with Felix and with many other rulers of his day. These men, ordained by God, called by God, to have an influence on politics. Perhaps not in their entirety of their life, but to a point when it was appropriate. In his book, How Christianity Changed the World, um, Alvin Schmidt uh, details some of the tremendous good that Christianity has brought into the world. And I want to mention just four of those issues. I've listed them for you on your, uh, on your outline there. Infanticide, the murdering of children, uh, child abandonment, sexual molestation, and abortion. Did you know that Schmidt has clearly documented in no uncertain terms that Christians, Christians were the primary ones responsible for the abolishing 
of these practices in the Roman Empire. It was Christians who were the ones who stood up against infanticide. It was Christians who stood up against those who would dump their children in the trash. I remember uh, uh, Tom Bennett, our, our, uh, our, our good friend and former worship leader here and, and preached from time to time, he spoke of a story in which Jerome, one of the great church fathers, the reason he converted to Christianity is because he saw Christians take a child out of the trash. A child who had been left there by their pagan Roman parents. Left to die. And Jerome saw Christians pick up that child and take that child home and he converted as a result of seeing that. Christians abolished, uh, uh, made it illegal to sexually molest a child. Christians made it illegal in the Roman Empire to abort a child. They were the ones at the forefront of enacting these kinds of laws, of persuading the political process in these kinds of ways. And they did so in accordance with James 4.17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. They knew they could not keep silent. They knew it. It was intrinsic to their being. They could not.
us and to guide this nation into truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.